Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Monday, February 21st, we are studying Luke chapter 10, verses 1 to 24. Jesus sends out his 72 disciples as laborers into the harvest field in order that they would proclaim that the kingdom of God has come near. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Ryan Agrotowitz. Pastor Agrotowitz serves as Associate Pastor and Headmaster at Grace Lutheran Church and School in Brenham, Texas. Pastor Agrotowitz, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thank you. It's good to be here as always. Pastor Agrotowitz, let's talk context. What should we know from the immediate context or anything from the first nine chapters of Luke that'll help us into the beginning of chapter 10 today? Yes, there's a lot coming into this text, I think two things are important. Um, there is an immediate context we'll talk about, but before that, there is what, what at least some scholars think is a turning point in Luke, and that's in chapter 9, where the text talks about Jesus setting his face to go to Jerusalem. That's in chapter 9, verse 51. When Jesus does that, the reader knows that his heart and his mind, especially now from this point onward. He is thinking about Jerusalem, his exodus spoken of in the transfiguration when he's talking to Moses and Elijah, is going to happen in Jerusalem. His face is set towards the city where he will ultimately be sentenced to death and he will go to the cross where he will suffer and, of course, die. I recall a professor at... Fort Wayne, Dr. Just, who wrote the commentary on Luke, you know, he, he thinks this is a turning point, uh, to be sure, but I remember him telling us that, in his opinion, having studied the text, that Jesus is, is really a different guy from 951 onward. His teaching has more bite to it. He's bearing the sins of the people, and that's a burden. So, he, you know, he, he believed strongly that past 51, you were just seeing the Lord fixated on Jerusalem and taking care of the mission that will culminate in the crucifixion. And the sharpness of his teaching, I, I think that claim is borne out in the text. When you get to Luke chapter 10, there certainly is a sense of urgency in sending out the 72 and this pressing importance that's taking place. A second thing I'd like to bring up context-wise would be this text that we're looking at today comes right after Jesus' teaching on forsaking the world and leaving things behind for the sake of the kingdom and going after the kingdom of God, being a disciple, a baptized believer, is never something to put off. And you see people come to Jesus, say they want to follow him, but they have some things to do, some things to get in order before they do, like bury people, say farewells, and these sorts of things. And 
the Lord makes it very clear that following him is never something to put off. There's never something to do before really repentance and faith and taking a Christian life seriously. That's important when we come into this text today, because that shapes how we should see the 72 men who have sacrificed, men who are going to forsake the world to uh, follow their Lord, hear his mandate, and go out into the world to, to proclaim the Holy Word and preparing people for the coming of Jesus. So those are two things I would say, you know, let's keep that in mind. The Lord is heading to the cross. That is on his mind, you know, 951 onward. We, we see the Lord just fixating upon what he has to do, which is go to Jerusalem, suffer, and die. And then, of course, to forsaking the world. That's always a good lesson for us Christians, and it's one that the 72 would have to embody as they go out on this journey with very, very few possessions. And we'll, we'll talk about that when we get deeper into the text. Well, let's go ahead and read the text. Then we're in Luke chapter 10, beginning at verse 1 this morning. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it, and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes." But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. That takes us through verse 16 of the text. I'll pause there. The 72 come back in the following text. So, Pastor Agrotowitz, we've got these 72, these disciples. Jesus sends them out in pairs. Take us into the, the way the scene gets set before we move into the words of Jesus. Well, first, the Lord appoints them. That's important. Nobody arrogates themselves to the ministry, but they're called into it. And so Jesus appoints, he's the one who is putting these disciples in the position to go out. They're going by twos, and I think that's important too, because the ministry, it, it, it really is a team. It's a team effort. I remember when I was, oh, I wasn't ordained yet, but I was at seminary. I think it was graduation night. Pastor Harrison was speaking. I remember him making the point that we are a brethren, that we are together. 
and that really stuck with me. So I could I could you know in, in, envision quite easily the reason as to why two are going out together. It's just good to have a, a companion in this, just like pastors today can call up other brothers in the ministry and even rely on each other as we as we do this work. And they are going before they're going before Jesus. The New King James says they're going before His face, which you know brings up you know the face of God and all that that means. You know a face that is turned towards people and all the theology packed into there. So going before His face is important because God is now on the scene and God is going to go to these cities, and the two are going to go prepare the people for the coming of God in the work and person of our Lord Jesus Christ. And really, that's a microcosm of how it is today. The Word is going forth, ambassadors for the Gospel sent by God into the world to prepare people to repent when He comes again, this time on the last day. So what we see going on here is not really any different, excuse me, from what's going on today in the sense that preparation is still happening. We're still preaching, we're still teaching, we're still trying to get people to repent and believe and think about think about our Lord's return when He comes and, and living for that day every day because we don't know when. So He sends these 72 out. Now, 72 seems like a, a large number compared to, say, the 12 apostles whom He selected, and yet, in the grand scheme of things, 72 men covering all of all of Israel is is not all that much. So the first thing that Jesus teaches them as he sends is hey there's a lot of there's a big harvest, not so many laborers. And and I love his command then, not work harder, though certainly hard work is entailed, but first pray. Take us into just those first words of Jesus. Yeah, sure. 72 sounds like a lot, right? I like the way you put it. I like that a lot. Um but yes, in the grand scheme, it's not. And pray. This ratio is necessary for us to bear in mind. There's always a lot of work. Uh, I recall a seasoned pastor saying one time that in a congregation, no matter what the size, you are typically going to get between 20-25% of the people actually doing a lot of the work. I haven't chased down that number, but in my experience in the ministry, that seems pretty accurate. And the Lord, when He's sending out these 72, He's given them a ratio to bear in mind. There's going to be a lot of work, but pray for workers. Yes, not just you know work harder, but pray. And there is a temptation to despair when the work is hard, to become even bitter, angry, and worry, because the work is so great and tremendous, and things just aren't getting done the way the way we think that they should. Um, from a pastoral perspective, I can say there have been many times where I've just looked around and, and just really wanted to sink in my chair because things weren't getting done. Well, instead of despairing and worrying, we should do what our Lord says, and that is pray for Him to send out workers into the harvest. And that causes me to repent because when I hear that, I realize I don't pray enough. Um, but instead, I'm given to worry, anxiety, all the things that we shouldn't do in my sinful flesh. You know, sadly, I find myself doing them. This is comforting because God hears our prayers. Uh, this is consoling to us because the Lord wants to hear us to hear us pray to Him. We should go to Him 
with all of our needs, the things on our hearts and on our minds, including, Lord, help us. We need help. Send out some workers. So this is a wise, comforting word of our Lord that we should take to heart and not forget in times when we're looking out and we see harvest, harvest everywhere and not enough workers. I think the fact that it's a, a harvest into which he sends is, I think that's a comfort too, that it's, you know, it's not the go out and plant the seeds. And I don't want to mix too many metaphors here, I suppose, because, you know, there is the parable of the sower that we've talked about previously, but the, he's sending out the workers into the harvest. I mean, like that, to me, that, that sounds like the, the harvest is there, go get it. The work's been done. It, it doesn't depend upon you, which maybe counterintuitively actually frees you to go about that hard work that is the holy ministry, because you know that it, it's not about you. It's about what Jesus has done, and it's a harvest that's out there waiting. So go about your work and then pray, because it, it all depends on the Lord anyway. Sure, and that, I think that word harvest is important, too, because when I think about harvest, I think about gathering, right? Mm-hmm. Gathering things. And we all know that oftentimes we are gathering what somebody else sowed. This, this should cause us not to think that there is no harvest, right? That we're just surrounded by pagans, and so evangelism doesn't matter. But that doesn't square with what our Lord is saying when he bids us to go out into the harvest and to gather. There are people out there who need to hear the word. There are people out there who will hear it and rejoice and be glad and, and come to your church. So you know, once again a lesson against despairing and thinking there is no harvest, there is no one to gather, so to speak, when in fact the Lord says, yes, it's plentiful, pray for workers, you know, and and get it. And yes, thank Him for the work, for producing that harvest um, as gift, as gift to us that we we're part of the mission, part of the work, but we can't can't take credit for it. Uh, Credit always goes to our Lord Jesus, which is where it should be, and that takes the onus, the burden off us. Uh, he, he has done the work. Even when we gather, we thank him for the opportunity uh, to gather what he has sown and produced. So comfort, assurance as he sends them out and with more instructions that sometimes uh, could be frightening. So the first thing he says, okay, go ahead, go. You're going out like lambs in the midst of wolves. <laughs> That's Oh, I don't know. That that would make a good ordination sermon, right? Pastor Agrado, it's that that's what we need to hear when we become pastors. You're going out as a lamb and there's a bunch of wolves out there. Have at it. What what's what's Jesus saying here? Well, the metaphor speaks for itself, I think. Just compare a lamb to a wolf and quite easily you can see the lamb's not going to win if if that the two encounter each other out in the wild. The lamb needs so much protection, it it can't fend for itself, whereas the wolf is right at home outdoors. The wolves are hungry. The wolves hunt in packs. They look for certainly flocks, but especially if a lamb goes by itself. This is teaching, though, the 72, as it teaches pastors today, you cannot do this on your own. And in John 15, the Lord says, apart from me, you can do nothing. And those words of our Lord really come to bear here. This word of our God um, should preclude us from thinking too much of ourselves. 
um, as strong as we think we are, as smart as we think we are, as wise as we think we are, we're not, we're lambs amongst wolves. And so this compels us to look for protection and guidance outside ourselves, which is what the 72 will um, be compelled to do as they go out as lambs. And let me comment here, too, the term lamb, we hear that, we think of of Christ, and of course him being the sacrificial lamb. The 72, their ministry, their going out, is sacrificial in that sense. They are in Christ, Christ is with him, they will share in his sufferings, they will learn what it's like to be without, and have to deal with the wolves. As our Lord faced enemies and was persecuted, they'll face the same sort of thing as they go and combat the forces of Satan and his legions who do not want the name hallowed and proclaimed amongst the people. Now, what about Jesus giving them no provisions on the way? No money bag, no knapsack. It's a pretty light weight suitcase that gets packed. Why, why does Jesus give that command in verse 4? I think at least two things. You know, I said earlier, this text has a sense of urgency, haste, pressing importance about it. Uh, this this quick-moving ministry as, as the apostles go out two by two. And maybe by even separating them in twos, they could move even faster than if they were just one big, giant group together. I think there is something to that. So haste, to be sure, traveling light instead of being, you know, uh, burdened with a lot of things. But more than that, they're going to learn to trust in God's provision, right? I mean, they really are, without the, the essentials, the things that we would think you need to take, plenty of water, plenty of food, extra pairs of sandals, make sure you have a staff, maybe even a knife if you can get it, a dagger of sorts, and, and anything in between we think you might need as you go out on a journey these things are not to be taken by the 72 because they're going to learn to pray that petition give us this day our daily bread they will they will be taught to trust in god to provide to protect so it's a good lesson early on um i don't want to psychoanalyze too much but i i wouldn't be a bit surprised if a number of them were deal, dealing with uh, some fears and anxieties and going out but their lord will be with them even as they travel, and even going without the basic necessities and the extra things, God will be with them and will teach them. In these words, he will teach them. You're going with, with, with very, very minimal things, the clothes on your back, essentially. But I will provide, and when it comes to shelter, they will have to take shelter uh, from the saints who are generous to take them in a real reliance on God, a real good lesson for these men, because they're lambs, right? They're lambs in the midst of wolves, and they can only rely upon their God to provide and protect. I mean, that, that verse, it looks like, among other things, that they get to embody, I think you used that word earlier, they get to embody what Jesus said earlier in Luke in the, the Sermon on the Plain, where he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And and as you said, they will get to learn that true blessedness just in the way that they go out carrying none of these things and yet having their daily bread and more importantly continuing to be a part of the kingdom of God living under the reign of of God in Christ Jesus now the way that the lord provides 
as you you mentioned already, comes through the saints that they meet on the way. And so they're they're to go to a house and speak peace, and then that peace may rest there or it may return. And then depending on the, the result, that may be where they end up staying. Talk about how this, when they go into a town and they start preaching, what happens? Well, once again, it's kind of up in the air, right? They may take you, they, might, they may not. Um, it's kind of conditional on whether or not the peace is received by the people and they have a place to stay. So there's not, there's not a lot of certainty in the sense that, hey, if you go here, a relative will take you in, or I know this guy, I know this girl, their family will take you in. It's dependent upon the house that receives them. So when they go and they preach, much as it is today, either people will receive it or they will not. But they're going to preach it. And so when somebody receives the peace, it will stay with them. They're not to go house to house. And, you know, one reason for that may be to prevent them from just just raking it in on a number of houses as they go from this house and that house and that house, and each family is just being very generous and giving them things, there may be the temptation there just to kind of stockpile stuff, the very thing they are not to do. If the town does not receive them, then that's that's bad on a number of levels. I think we're going to get into that as this text goes deeper, but the peace does not stay with them. And if you don't have God's peace and you have wrath, that's the outcome. Either a person receives the peace at the proclamation of the 72, or they reject it. They say no, they blaspheme, and so the wrath of God is on such a person who does not want the peace, the peace of our Lord Jesus, the 72, are preaching. Talk a little bit more about the the peace being the content. The peace be to this house is what's to be spoken there in verse 5. We've talked about the proclamation of the kingdom of God in, in various points in Luke's gospel, and we'll get to talk about it here as well. But it's been a while, I think, since we've we've heard the, the concept of the peace being proclaimed. I, I go back to the, the angel to the shepherds and the, the peace that's there. What does that mean, to, to speak peace to this house, as Jesus gives it here? Right, and I think you're right to go back to the proclamation of the angels. Peace and goodwill on earth amongst men. This peace is not some secular temporal peace, but peace with God. Christ is going to Jerusalem. That's where he's going to have his exodus from this world through death, but as going to bring peace in that sinners are now reconciled to God for the sake of the only begotten Son through his cross and his blood. And that's the peace these people are bringing to members of this house who receive it and believe in it. It's a peace that's always wrapped up in Jesus, a peace that should calm the conscience, a troubled heart, a troubled mind, a peace of knowing that you are right with God, reconciled to him, and that is a real heavenly divine comfort and consolation that one needs in a fallen world filled with chaos, turmoil, and trouble the peace of knowing Jesus who says, take heart, I have overcome the world. That's the kind of peace that these uh, apostles sent forth are bringing to, uh, bringing to these, these, these homes and these cities that receive them. Talk a little bit more about the matter of eating and drinking what they provide. We, you know, we, they weren't to take anything with them. But in the, in the notes that you, you sent me ahead of time, 
You mentioned the there's no there's nothing here about dietary laws, and, and so maybe I don't know. I'm just curious where you were going with that. Like, is this maybe already a hint of of say what's coming in the Book of Acts, of, where Peter is told to to eat whatever, and the 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 matters of clean and unclean go away, or, or what? It, I, I'm just curious what you had in mind there. A little bit more on that would I, that would enlighten me. Sure, that's what I have in mind. You know, and when I've read that, eat whatever is set before you. I mean, to a Jew who's living very strictly by the dietary laws, you know, what you eat and put in your mouth is a really, really big deal. And for the Lord to say, just eat whatever is put before you, sure, I think it is at least a strong hint to what's going to take place in Acts. And I'm thinking of Cornelius and Peter and that episode in Acts. I haven't looked at that text in a while. I want to comment and say something false. But um, in Christ, you know, him declaring all foods clean, those types of uh, theological points, I, I think, are not out of bounds here when the Lord tells them, just eat whatever is set before you, don't worry about those things, your holiness is with me, and so forth. Um, uh, to be sure, he doesn't go into detail here, but at the very least, I mean, the Lord tells him, whatever is set before you, eat it. And it, it does make me wonder, I mean, had you know a, a slab of, of pork been laid before the, the appointed 72 well, according to our Lord's words, you know, eat it and, and don't worry about it. So where I was going with that is, yeah, in Christ, all things are clean, and the dietary laws and the Mosaic, uh, the Mosaic prohibitions and so forth find their fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and I, I would say, too, that, that's, that's what's embedded in his words right here. Again, he doesn't go into full, a full treatment right here. Um, but that's where I, that's where I would um, I would say our Lord is going with that. Well, I think yeah, I think you're right that it, it certainly sets the stage for what is to come, if nothing else. I, I mean, I, just in the narrative of Luke here, it's it's hard to imagine the seventy two going into a Gentile town. It, I mean, it seems likely that they would have gone into Jewish places. And so the possibility of a you know slab of bacon being put in front of them is highly unlikely, it would seem. But when you do get into the book of Acts, I, I think you see how these words do set the stage for that Gentile mission, and, and they, can, they can go back in their own minds and, and remember the words of Jesus. Ah, he, he did say, eat what was put in front of you, and he, he didn't say it was only in the Jewish town. So here I am in this Gentile town. I've been received. They've received the peace of the Lord. I'm going to eat because in the Lord it is clean. Those dietary restrictions are gone. He has fulfilled the law. So I think it's a a fantastic point, Pastor Grotowitz. And we're going to to pause there and take our break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're talking the first part of Luke 10 with Pastor Ryan Grotowitz. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. 
Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, February 21st. We are studying Luke chapter 10, verses 1 to 24 with Pastor Ryan Agrotowitz. He is associate pastor and headmaster at Grace Lutheran Church and School in Brenham, Texas. Pastor Agrotowitz, prior to the break, we left off with verse 9. So we've talked about the peace being spoken to the house and whether it's received or not. In verse 9, we get to a little more familiar language from, from recently in Luke's gospel. The kingdom of God has come near. That's part of the proclamation. But it's connected with healing. We've seen that in Jesus' own ministry. How does that play itself out as the 72 go out? The city that receives them gets healing. So receiving Christ means healing. That is a theme that is still true today. Uh, the healings back then would have testified to God's command and rule over creation. He makes all things right, and by a word is able to to um, exhibit his rule over creation and the healings that he does and restoring people from sickness back to health. That That's still a same theme today. Certainly healings do take place. I don't want to get uh, too eccentric with this, but the main point I'm making with saying healing comes with Christ is the baptized believer dwelling in Christ has that wonderful, glorious promise that the perishable shall one day put on the imperishable, that when you die in Christ, you go to be with him, and at the resurrection, you see your God face-to-face in the flesh that he uh, certainly has created and fashioned, and when you rise on the last day, you will not be worried about sickness and disease, but there will be healing that has come to you, and it'll be glorious and marvelous and yours for the sake of Jesus. So the theme here of reception, you know, hearing and receiving the peace and then healing afterwards, again, microcosm of life for the Church, where at the resurrection the Church lives and is unencumbered by the limitations and all the deadly things that ravage our flesh here and now. Talk a little bit about the rejection that Jesus mentions may happen. Here he expands it farther than a house. He talks about a whole town that rejects in verses 10 through 12. Yes, the kingdom of God has come, and it is rejected when the the proclamation, the peace given by the 72, is spurned, and rejected by the people. And then, boy, verse 12, it'll be more tolerable on that day for Sodom than for that city. And then the Lord launches into Chorazin, Bethsaida, and he's going to compare them to Tyre and Sidon. To compare a city to Sodom would have been a very uh, graphic illustration because, of course, we know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah from Genesis quite well. What more can be said other than, you know, rejecting the voice of these people is rejecting God who is speaking through them. Now, we're going to get to that a little later, a little deeper, but, you know, to reject these, a point I think worth highlighting is, whereas Sodom certainly was an evil, wicked city filled with sexual immorality, living unrighteously, and so forth, here we see a rejection of the proclamation of God, when God is now on the scene. This is a very distinct, um, extraordinary moment in time and space when God 
has come. He is incarnate in the person of Jesus, and the people are throwing all of that away. So the Lord's words really highlight the severity of this rejection for the people are not just, you know, turning at the sound of an Isaiah or a Jeremiah, but now God is here in the presence, in the midst of the people, in the person of Jesus Christ, doing all the miracles and everything that he does, and to reject all of that is severe enough that the Lord says it's more bearable for a town like Sodom than it is for people rejecting God's peace now on the scene um, in the living Christ and his word that he is bringing to people through men like the 72. Well, and then Jesus expands upon that. He, he speaks about that town that you go to in verse 12, and, and it'll be more bearable for Sodom for that town. Then he begins to mention a few specific towns where I think he's already been. On the one hand, he speaks woe to Chorazin, to Bethsaida, and to Capernaum, and then he compares those to Tyre and Sidon in this case. what It sounds like he's expanding upon what he's already said in verse 12. Take us deeper into verses 13 to 15. Right, yes. I think 12 flows into 13, even though I have a, um, you know, the New King James I have open right now. That's just the Bible I grabbed for this, this interview. I like ESV too. It's fine. But yeah, same thing as what I was just talking about. Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum. He compares them to Tyre and Sidon. Now, Chorazin and Bethsaida and even Capernaum, you know, we don't know a great deal about these cities, but there's there's quite a bit in the Old Testament about Tyre and Sidon. And of all the verses, I think Isaiah does a, a, a very clear job highlighting a city like Tyre, who is very pompous and prideful, and, and Minch has this line that her traders were the honored of the earth. So when you hear the word trader, you should think commerce, money, um, you know, trade flowing in and out. But, you know, she falls. She falls. And so to compare these New Testament cities to Tyre and Sidon, we kind of get a glimpse of what's going on. Prideful cities rejecting God, Capernaum. Um, shall she be exalted to heaven? Of course, it's a rhetorical question. The no, uh, no, she, uh, you know, pride comes before the fall, and that's going to uh, to happen to her as well for her rejection. So, you know, once again, for Tyre and Sidon, you know, as bad as these cities were, as much as the Old Testament text talks about them, the Lord Jesus will will bring up that um, you know if the works if the works done now in the presence of cities like Bethsaida, Chorazin, and Capernaum. If works done there would have been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes long ago, suggesting strongly that more had even been done to these New Testament cities, uh, you know, more to them, and they are still rejecting. So, and again, that underscores the the, the the dangerous the severity of their rejection that God has done you know arguably more for them and they're still turning their backs they're still turning their backs I mean it's an extraordinary rejection but it happens and the Lord pronounces woe unto them um, it'll be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you says our Lord so. The severity really, really, I mean, it, it, it almost cannot be captured in words for these cities 
to to hear the teaching, see the miracles and the mighty works, and still fall away. I think that these verses add to that sense of urgency that you mentioned toward the beginning, that, look, the mighty works are being done in you right now. These other cities, had they had these works, they would have repented. So the urgency then is you repent right now while the works are there, while these 72 are coming as the messengers of, of God's peace, What's the response? It's it's repent right now before it, it's too late, like it is for these cities. It is still merciful. Yes, I, I like that point. It is still merciful for Jesus to be saying these things right now in the hopes that they would still hear, and by the grace of God, yes, turn and repent from their sin. So even the woes that he is pronouncing, the 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 act of mercy in that is that the Lord is calling out their sin, right? And he's pointing out to them the difference between them and Tyre and Sidon, that what they are doing in their rejection here and now is even more severe than these horrible Old Testament cities talked about in Isaiah and other places. Again, with the hopes these people would repent and see God's wisdom and salvation in the work of the Messiah. Now, for the purpose of that repenting, the Lord is sending the 72, and he gives them a a wonderful promise in verse 16. I think you started to to reference this earlier, but we want to really dig in here. What is Jesus saying in verse 16? What's the promise that he's giving to the 72? That when they proclaim the Word of God, the people are hearing God himself speak. He is speaking through the 72, just like he spoke through the prophets of whole old, and as he speaks through pastors today called to proclaim um, the majesty of God's holy word. I, I think this is a very important passage, and yeah, I touched upon it earlier, but I wanted to save it a lot of discussion until this point. He who hears you hears me. He who hears me hears he who sent me. One cannot... One cannot reject Jesus, but still claim faith and fidelity to God. One cannot claim to love the Father, but reject the Son. To reject the Son is to reject the Father. Um, To go a step further, to reject the prophet, the one appointed to proclaim, is to reject Christ and to reject the Father. Um, It's a package deal. You cannot have one without the other. So it is a promise to them that when they are speaking, they are hearing the words of Jesus. It's not just, it's not their word. It's the word of God that they're bringing to the people. This is very important in today's context for a number of reasons. One, when we think about the office of the Holy Ministry, when the pastor in the divine service says something like, in the stead and by the command of my Lord Jesus Christ, I forgive you all your sins, that is God's forgiveness being spoken through his man. And that language should not rattle us, because here we see the same thing, God speaking through people. Another common thing that we hear today is stuff like, oh, don't judge me, you are not in the position to judge, only God can judge. And of course that's true, but people say that when they don't want to hear a word of admonition and rebuke from someone. They... they, they create a very convenient separation between a rebuke coming from a person and God himself, when there should be no separation at all, 
when the person is speaking the holy word of God. So here, it's it's not convenient for Karazin. I mean, they may think it's convenient, but there's no convenience at all on their part to say, well, I don't have to listen to you because you're not God. Maybe that is some some peace in their minds, but what they're actually doing is rejecting God himself who is speaking through these people. So I, I think this is a very important verse. It's one that we can't lose sight of because it teaches us God working through means to 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 bring his word to people that they would hear and believe. And it's an act of grace and mercy that he still puts his word in the mouth of people to be spoken that people would hear and believe. Maybe it's one Christian telling another hey, your sins are forgiven, God says so, this is what he says, or the pastor proclaiming absolution when someone comes to him and confesses their sins, and even here, an act of mercy for God to send out the 72 and actually speak through them, speak through them that people would know what God thinks about them, that they are loved. Hey, you are forgiven for the sake of my Son, Jesus Christ, and that there is peace. You have peace because of him and what he has done. That's a great message, a very comforting message, and one that still goes out today. And sadly, on the flip side, there are people who hear it and reject it. Yeah, I mean, I appreciate you bringing out both sides of that, because it is, I think, at least in my own mind, I'm, I'm prone to, to look at the part about rejection, you know, and, and that it stands as a warning to rejecting the, the man sent by God, the servant that he gives to speak his word. And, and certainly we need to take heart to that warning as those who hear, but also then the promise that when I when I do hear that that man, I'm not just hearing the say the opinion, the pious opinion of some guy, but I'm actually hearing the word of Christ himself spoken through me. And as you said in the absolution, what great comfort that is to know that the the pastor who stands there forgiving my sins, that that's not the pastor's forgiveness, that's God's forgiveness that the pastor is speaking. And so that I, I can know that when when he says, the pastor says, I forgive you, I've actually heard God tell me that he forgives me. And, and what a what a glorious promise that is that, that again, goes out through the 72 here, and the Lord still works through the office of the Holy Ministry today. What, what, what a wonderful promise. Now, that takes us to the sending. Our text also gets us to the returning, and we need to keep reading. We're in Luke 10, picking up now at verse 17. The 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that, you're, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desire to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. That's the rest of our text for today. That was Luke 10, verses 17 to 24. 
So at Pastor Agrotowitz, as the 72 come back, they're very joyful. The reason for their joy as they speak it to Jesus is that the demons are subject in to them in the name of Jesus. And then Jesus says a very striking phrase, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. This is one of the texts that, that often gets read on the feast day of St. Michael and Arch, uh, Saint Michael and all angels. Uh, talk about, what, what does that mean when Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven? I'm glad. I think it's very interesting on the feast of St. Michael and the archangels. I, I didn't think about that. And certainly when I was, you know, I, I have read this text before and thought, well, clearly that, that must refer you know, to, to, of course, the war in heaven talked about in Revelation, Michael and the archangels defeating Satan and the fallen angels that go with him. I mean, it's really a fantastic text to read. And I'm not going to say that does not refer to that. I mean, it, it's kind of hard not to think about that battle and the fall of Satan. But I want to I want to bring something else out, too, for the hearer. And uh, if you if you read this in the grammar in the Greek, it, it's actually, it, it, it should be probably more something like, I saw Satan falling like lightning from heaven. Uh, it's an imperfect tense, which is, which is an ongoing past action, and that's, that's a, a little hard for an English speaker and reader, because we don't really think about the aspect, the type of action that's going on. Of course, we have present tense and past tense, but that's really about it in English, whereas in Greek and in Latin, there's different types of actions in the past. There can be a completed past, an ongoing past, um, even an action prior to another past action. And here, it, it's yes, it's an action in the past. He saw Satan fall, but he was seeing Satan fall. And that strongly suggests that when he was seeing Satan fall was a reference to the work of the 72 and the demons being subject to the mighty name is always Satan falling. His kingdom is always falling. And here in the ministry and work of the 72, he saw Satan falling like lightning because the demons were being made subject to the name. And again, I don't want to take away, of course, Jesus saw Satan fall like lightning in the war in heaven. Of course, he was there and saw it. Um, no qualms against that. But I also like looking at this from the perspective of Satan falling at the ministry of these people because they're proclaiming the mighty name. I mean, we deal with demons today. We deal with sin today. We deal with Satan today. And to believe he is falling at the mighty name of Jesus is another comforting teaching and proclamation for us. Um, in holy baptism, that name is there and mentioned. And the devil falls before it. The name is mightier than the devil, mightier than our sin, mightier than death. It is the name of salvation, a name that means you belong to God, and the devil's not going to take that away when you dwell by faith in the hands of the living Jesus. So lots there really to talk about, and I, I think I think that's, that's a, um, a point to think about the falling at the proclamation of the word, the proclamation of the name that even the demons have to bow to. Mm. Well, and I, I think it actually fits very nicely with the Revelation 12 text that you mentioned, and which is also read on the feast day of St. Michael and all angels, where in Revelation 12, speaking of the saints, the, a voice from heaven says, 
they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. Well, I mean, I think that's precisely what's going on here in Luke chapter 10. Mm. And so I, mean, I think, you know, the word of the testimony, when that word is proclaimed, the kingdom of God, Christ's reign is here, then Satan cannot help but fall. And that's what the 72 have experienced in the name in the name of Jesus in their ministry that he gave them. Now he I don't know how to say this. I think Jesus maybe he redirects their joy. Not so much like haha Satan, although I think there's a place for that, but he redirects their joy to something else. What does he do in verse 20? Yeah, sure. In verse 20 he says, Rejoice your names are written in heaven. Rejoice you're saved. Rejoice you're forgiven. Rejoice that you are my child. There there is a temptation here to get caught up into thinking that the mere, the mere uh, uh, miracle, if you will, um, the exorcism, the healing, that the joy is in these things. I mean, I can't help but think about the the real enthusiastic um, person. I mean, this is an extreme example, but like rejoicing because he thinks you know he can have a snake bite him in the middle of the people but he'll survive because God is with him. Well, that's, that, that, that drastically misses, misses the point. Um, the point is that they are forgiven, they belong to God in Christ. These, these miracles and the things that they're doing, they are great, absolutely, and that they are rejoicing over that, that is good, but they can't lose sight of the ultimate, the ultimate uh, end for, for any Christian, which is life with God, in, in the eternal abodes that he has secured and established for his people. Um, another comparison point might be for the pastor. I mean, when we have successes in the ministry, we shouldn't be so caught up in the successes that pride creeps in, or we begin to think a little highly of ourselves, or, God forbid, we think we have some sort of innate power to do this. And that, to me, sounds more akin to sorcery than it does life in the holy ministry. But we have our successes. When we do, we thank God for them, but can't lose sight of our own selves being sinful people who daily need to repent and find consolation in the gospel. Pastor Agrotowitz, we've got about four and a half minutes here on the morning, and a few verses left to talk about, verses 21 to 24. Two, two parts, it seems, where, the, where you have Jesus rejoicing in the Holy Spirit himself, thanking the Father for hiding and revealing, and then speaking to his disciples, blessed are your eyes. Take us into those those two texts with the last four and a half minutes we got. Living living like a, a, a child, living like a child, spiritually speaking, is living by faith, not relying upon reason, and not relying upon wisdom and knowledge, but the Lord is thankful that even babes, I mean, that's what the New King James says, and that Greek term can include even infants, that belief, faith in these things is something God-given, not something that is a product of human imagination, uh, cleverness, wisdom, knowledge, and these sorts of things. Um, I, I, I mean, I'd have to go dig it up, but I remember stumbling across a proverb. I think I put that in the notes for us. The more learned, the more mistaken. And that's really what's going on here. I mean, how often have we seen people championed by the world as being brilliant, smart, and yet they miss the gospel. They miss faith in Christ. 
Well, here the Lord Jesus makes a clear distinction between the wise and the prudent, those who can't figure it out, even though they have a great capacity for knowledge, and yet the babe gets it. Why? Because faith is something God always gives. It's one point to make. I know we're crunched for time here a little bit, but faith is God-given. And then the second point to make as we approach the end, this is a very unique moment in time where now it's not just prophets on the scene talking about the coming of the Messiah, but here Christ is on the scene before the 72, and this is a very unique moment in time and in history, and the Lord is bringing that out. He's underscoring that when he says, Many prophets and kings desire to see what you see, to hear what you hear and did not. Christ is here the Messiah has come. He's going to make his exodus. Uh, finally, everything foretold in the Old Testament is coming to fulfillment in the work of Jesus. That's what's going on here. And, uh, you know, we're in Luke 10 right now. The story, of course, continues, but the Lord, in short, he will do his work. He will accomplish what he set out to do. He will die and rise in triumph and a glory that we as his people share in. That's that's a fantastic promise there at the end, and and how blessed are the eyes of the disciples, the ears as well, to see to hear these things, and again, underscoring that that urgency when you when you see Christ, when you hear His word, blessed are your ears, blessed are your eyes to to behold to hear this good news of the kingdom of God, His peace coming near to you. Repent, believe in the gospel. Again, that that urgency, and it comes to you and to me still today. Pastor Ryan Agrotowitz serves as associate pastor and headmaster at Grace Lutheran Church and School in Brenham, Texas, helping us today with Luke chapter 10, verses 1 to 24. Pastor Agrotowitz, thanks for being our guest today. A pleasure. Thanks for having me. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Luke chapter 10 or any of the gospel according to St. Luke, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send a message to us. We always love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.